verse 25. Ladies, you are stoked. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Ephesians 5.25. Trying to think through what the next few weeks are going to look like. Probably um, three weeks concerning uh, the husband. Uh, And then maybe coming back to... um, Verse 33, and just touching on uh, the, the final exhortation to both the husband and wife there, and, um, and then possibly doing a week on parenting, or maybe a few weeks on parenting. I'm just, you know, uh, got 242 home groups, and just trying to look at the fall, and, and things like that, and, um, but uh, I could definitely put another eight weeks together for this series, so... Not sure if that's the Lord or not, but um, as we're in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, uh, let's read it together. Husbands, not you don't have to read with me, I'll read it for you. <laughs> Joe, I sensed you were, you're about to speak up, buddy. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So, or just as, uh, sorry. So, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Thought I had a typo there. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great profound mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. In the Broadway musical Camelot, King Arthur speaks this story out. How to handle a woman. There is a way, said the wise old man, a way that's been known by every woman since this whole rigmarole began. Do I flatter her? Do I beg uh, I begged him answer. Do I threaten or cajole or plead? Do I brood or play the gay romancer? Meant something different back in the 60s. (laughs) Or did it? Said he smiling, no indeed. How to handle a woman, mark me well. I will tell you, sir, the way to handle a woman is to love her. Simply love her. Merely love her. Love her, love her, love her. Alan J. Lerner was the man that composed this, and little did he know, his lyric from King Arthur was very biblical. It was very Christian, and it reflected Paul's exhortation and command to husbands from Ephesians chapter 5 so very well. Now, after we've done a good uh, five-week series on the part of submission and the Christian wife, you'd think that Paul's command to Christian husbands would be something like, finally, assume and take your leadership with some sort of Braveheart war paint on the face as you would go to do that. Or perhaps it would mean or, or be spoken, take your control and function as the head. But there's nothing like that written to the husbands. Paul's comments regarding headship are spoken to who? To the wives about the husbands. The husbands aren't told to be heads here. They are heads. It's just what they are. They're told love, love, love. In fact, I say it three times because three times in this section, verse 25, love your wives. Verse 28, husbands ought to love their own wives. Verse 33, 
love her as himself. Again, he's not invalidating that the husband is the head and the headship and that role of the Christian husband, but he's trying to really emphasize the substance behind that headship. We can be so strong-willed and dominating as we've been studying and become dictatorial, but rather the the portrait that Paul is trying to paint here is a portrait of redemption, not dictatorship, okay? And that's the whole fragrance, the whole theme of this section. It's nice to see Paula fanning herself because it's been so cold in here, so we crank the heat up to 75. I'm wearing a sweatshirt because I got like Blackberry on it or on my, okay, anyways. Love her, love her, love, when it's a small group, you can get distracted like that and then come right back. Love her. In Ephesians, love is really one of the dominant themes. There's this common thread throughout six chapters of love, God's love, man's love towards one another. There's a great love um, that we see in God's sovereignty and his plan that stretches from eternity past. Uh, There's this repeated exhortation to love one another. In chapter 4, verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, that we would bear with one another in love. Now, if that's not practical advice for a bunch of sinners that are dwelling together, living together, setting up and tearing down summer in the park services together, you know, uh, serving at the oasis together, cleaning a church and cleaning bathrooms and, you know, being part of a home fellowship, uh, you know, this is practical stuff for sinners. Sinners within a church, or as the book title says, when sinners say, I do, you go to Ephesians and you look at love and you see, man, we got to bear with one another in love. There's, if, if you're isolating yourself from Christian community, there's no need to bear with anybody. It doesn't say bear with yourself. <laughs> Be patient with yourself. No, it's bear with one another. Bear with other believers. Bear with, and, and you get into the most intimate form of Christian community here in chapter 5, bear with your wife and bear with your husband. Later on in chapter 4, we see this mutual responsibility of speaking the truth in love. In chapter 4, verse um, 2, I'm sorry, uh, later on in chapter 4, this speaking the truth in love, where literally in the Greek, uh, it's, it's phrased like this, that we are to be truthing in love to one another. I like that. Truthing in love, whether it's verbal or written or modern day, emailing, Facebooking, blogging, we're to be truthing in love to one another. It'd be good for us to be reminded of that uh, tonight. As we exercise our gifts in this community, we're building one another up in love. Chapter 5 verse 2 says, walk in love. Let love just be paramount in the Christian's life. Or if you have the NIV translation, it says live in love. Live in love. Now we know it, you guys know it, you could probably preach it as well as me now, that chapter 5 verse 21 tells us that this submission role that we've been talking so much about, it's mutual, it's reciprocal, it's my responsibility to you, it's your responsibility to me that we're yielding to one another in love, we're submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. I'm actually submitting to Lindsay, Lindsay's submitting to me on one level. This submission is a special identifying feature amongst the children of God. It's, it's part of love. And Jesus says, you, they will know that you are Christians, that you are my people by your love to one another. By your love within marriage. Love here in verses 25 through 33 is mentioned six times in the, in the context of being a Christian husband. But why love? Why love? I mean, some people might throw that in there, but really where we're from, where I'm from, K Falls, 
not so much K-Falls, more Bonanza, you know. Uh, we would throw other verbs in there. Husbands, lead your wives as Christ led the church. Oh, dude, how many of us would answer that call? I love to lead, yeah, you know. Maybe there's a version out there that, that says that. Husbands, rule your wives. Or direct your wives. Husbands, manage your wives. As, yeah, whip sound. Oversee your wives. You know, Paul, who wrote this, he was a holy man of God who was carried by the Holy Spirit. He wrote this, and the Lord knew it, that when a, even a Christian man on his best day would read something like that, man, our fallen condition, part of that curse we read about in Genesis chapter 3, would take that and run with it. And, you know, we would even twist it and make it some form of us being able to dominate our wives or exploit our wives or use our wives and victimize them. And so God in his infinite wisdom spoke to Paul, and Paul, in his own personality, wrote out, Husbands, love. Love your wives. Even the command to the wife was to submit. The perfect partner to that is love. Love your wives. Love is to tower as Christian men do this work of husbanding to their wives. And he tells us to love, and we're going to look at it in the next few weeks, by giving us this incredible example of Jesus. Not by giving us some fancy list that's been printed out with a magnet background that you can put on your refrigerator and go through the checklist and make sure that you're loving your wife right. You know, make sure you're taking her out on dates and make sure that you're giving her this number of flowers. Uh, you know, that's not given to us uh, anywhere in Scripture. There's some good practical wisdom to that, that the Holy Spirit works out in us because we love our wives. But the real instruction and ability to love, again, is found in Jesus. And we're going to look at that in the weeks to come. We would expect those kinds of things to be in the Bible, but they're just not there. Instead, Paul gives us a testimony of the best lover the world has ever seen and how he relentlessly pursues his bride, his love, and lays his life down for her. And that love produces uh, just a, re a reciprocated love and a submitting love and a respecting love back to him. And, and Paul lays it out in this kind of novel um, you know, type writing. It's almost a fresh gospel that we have here, a gospel account here in Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 33, because it just lays out just concisely um, what Jesus has done for us on the same vein as, as a Matthew or a Mark or a Luke or a John. He gives us this and plunges us into a fresh consideration of who Jesus is and what he has done for his bride. And that is the example to us, just like with the women, that, that you know, defines uh, love, it defines headship, it defines or it motivates us, it propels us uh, to be what we need to be as husbands, and that is loving and so, uh, submission of verse 22 through 24 is to be romanced in verses 25 through 33. And you might write that, men, in the margin of your Bible. I know that this young kid might not teach you guys too much about <laughs> marriage. But uh, there's, there's some wisdom here in the word. Submission of verse, and just the outline, 22 through 24, submission is to be romanced, verse 25. So how to handle a woman? King Arthur asked, Mark me well, dear sir, the only way to handle her well is to love her, simply love her, merely love her, love her, love her, love her. Pretty simple. We need to, as husbands, think of our responsibilities to our wives in terms of the atonement of Jesus. 
in terms of the great extent that he went to, that even though we were in rebellion against him, even though we were sinners against him, from before time, he had a plan to come and to rescue us and to romance us and to love us with a love that would draw us to him. We love him because he first loved us. And Paul establishes the nature of romantic marriage within the context of the atonement and the redemption of our creator. Listen to the words from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Been enjoying him lately. Uh, Physician turned preacher. He says this, Foolish Christian, have you got so tired of hearing about the cross Do you know so much about it? Do you understand it so exhaustively that it cannot any longer move you? Ah, you say, I want the higher teaching now. I want detailed teaching now as to how I'm to live this sanctified life. You will never live the sanctified life unless you are always there by that cross. Unless it is governing the whole of your life and influencing the whole of your outlook and your every activity, you cannot leave the cross behind. You are never such an advanced Christian that it is a mere beginning as far as you are concerned. That it is the way to make a sh- that is the way to make a shipwreck of marriage and everything else. I start there at the cross. I continue there at the cross. And woe to me if I ever cease To be there. I'll tell you. Rory Rogers is a sinner. Probably more than any of you. (laughs) Lindsay would attest to that. And in the times that I've been going through conflict, even with my wife, the times that God has brought like incredible redemption and healing through the midst of conflict is when I've meditated upon the cross. When I've meditated upon upon how while I was a sinner or while I was an offense against God, God pursued me and sought after me. And so Lindsay came and pursued after me and sought after me. No, of course it was me. No, I'm kidding. Don't tell her I said any of that. Paul teaches marriage on the context of the atonement and what God has done with his, in his great sacrifice. And it's, it's how Paul teaches us. And it's the vein that we stay on uh, here, driving us to the cross. Understanding the cross and God's servant leadership is the basis for all relationships within the church within marriage, and within our relationship with our kids. You look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, and you might ask the question, what is love? Well, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love, and we might think, you know, stop and pause, we might be, oh, if God so loved us, we also ought to love God. But that's not what it says here. If God so loved us, what's it say at the end of verse 10? We also ought to love one another. As we go to the cross, as we realize how much he loved us, that's the definition of love that he sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. As we have the vertical focus on the gospel and what he has done for us, then so we ought to love one another. It kicks the vertical aspect into high gear. This love comes from right before the cross when Jesus gave us an example that he said we were to follow in John 13, 14, when Jesus bowed down and washed the disciples' feet. He says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash. And you might pause and say, oh, hey, Jesus, Jesus, I know. If you've washed our feet, then we should wash your feet. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He set the bar. He laid out the example of leadership. He laid out the example of love. 
by being a servant, not demanding to be served, but serving, Mark 10.45 says, and giving his life as a ransom for many. Besides, if we would have washed Jesus' feet, we'd brag about it all the time. I've washed Jesus' feet. Or, you know, that would have been Peter's, like, bragging rights for the rest of his apostolic ministry. And so as we look at the gospel, it builds community within our church and within our community, within our home groups, because that love goes out to one another. Rather than creating programs you know, that will fail within five years and you're going to have to invent some other program and you're going to have to beat the last program and make it more exciting and more crazy. We do the gospel. We do gospel living. We have gospel community. We look at how Jesus loved us and then we go and love one another. I look at how Jesus loved me and then I go and love my wife on that most intimate level of community. You read the New Testament, you don't find programs anywhere, but you see Jesus in the gospel and the saving beauty of the cross. And according to Paul here from verse 25, this saving love of Jesus makes us want to imitate it. You know, as, as Paul says, be imitators of God as dear children. He's really easy to imitate. You know, because he's loving. It draws us and it makes us want to, to love our wife when we look at him. Love is learned from a person, not a program. It's learned by watching Jesus. And once you've watched Jesus and you've understood the gospel, there's very little need for practical things. I mean, you could live in a world that didn't have a Christian bookstore, but you know the gospel and the Holy Spirit is going to move you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And you're going to have a healthy marriage. Because it's a work of the Holy Spirit. There was a Puritan who wrote, Who besides an apostle would have thought of enforcing conjugal affection by reference to the love of Christ to his church? But he has done this and has thus represented redeeming love as a kind of holy atmosphere surrounding a Christian on all sides, accompanying him everywhere, sustaining his spiritual existence, the very element in which his religion lives, moves, and has his being. And this indeed is religion. And the Puritans would use that term religion all the time to just refer to bona fide Christianity, he says, this indeed is religion, not a name, not a creed, not a form, not an abstract feeling, not an observance of times and places, not a mere mental uh, costume or holy dress that we put on exclusively for certain seasons or occasions. No, but a moral habit, a mental taste, the spirit of the mind, which will spontaneously appear. It's not programmed. It appears by the work of the Holy Spirit in our language, in our feeling, in our behavior, by a reference of Jesus Christ as the gospel of hope and the model of immigration. The Holy Spirit works out in us. It's a work of the Spirit to, to love our wives and to pour out our lives sacrificially for them. The more we look at Jesus, the more the Spirit works it out in us. Okay, a lot of introduction there. But just husbands, you need to know that this is what you are going to hear the next three weeks. It's what you can expect from me. It's going to put us in a place where we will just, you know, have this steady, healthy inhaling of the cross and thinking of the cross and pondering the cross so that we can exhale love to our wives that is just going to, you know, by grace and by the Spirit, it also is going to just work, you know, a work of submission and a work of respect and a work of love that's reciprocated. It's all by the Holy Spirit, though. George MacDonald said, The man who thoroughly loves God is the one man who will love a woman ideally. Who can love her with the love God thought of between them when he made them male and female? The man, I repeat, who loves God with his very life is the man who alone is capable of grand, perfect, glorious love to any woman. All right.
So you all here tonight, you are basically in a school of ministry class to go out to the rest of our church, to go out to the rest of our brothers and sisters in the Lord, people that don't even go to our church, and speak to these men that are having failing marriages, that are having unhealthy marriages, that are dictatorial marriages, that you know, look like Adolf Hitler with a wedding ring on or something, you know, and you can speak to them, hey, you want to be able to love your wife? Love your God. Loving your God will, will work out that love for our wife. A definition of love. Love on the part of a Christian husband is defined as an unceasing commitment to his wife for her highest good. That's what this biblical love is that's been modeled in Jesus. An unceasing commitment to his bride for her highest good. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, have an unceasing commitment to her for her highest good. Just like in verse 22, where the wives are directly addressed... Here, Paul directly addresses husbands. And so, just as we've learned that, guys, we can't take verse 22 and just throw it in our wife's face and tell her to submit. It's not addressed to us for us to use as a tool in beating her and, you know, causing her to submit. It's for her so that she can voluntarily submit to her husband's sacrificial love. We have our own exhortation from Paul, and that is to love. And wives, you don't get to use it as a stick against us. Tonight, I can hear the conversations on the way home. Loretta's going to tell Frank, why aren't you loving me? Paul told us to love our, our, love our wives. You're not loving me. What's going on? I want you to love me. I need this love. I'm craving this kind of love. Where is it, Frank? Yeah. Let Loretta walk the rest of the way home. No, I'm just kidding. The, the wife doesn't have a license here from verse 25 to use this against her husband and to manipulate him to get what she thinks or even knows she deserves. This is a word from the, the it's a direct word to the husbands. And the husbands can hear it from the Lord to love their wives. This is obedience that the Christian husband owes to his Savior who poured out his life and has bought him. And so for us brothers and husbands, there's forcefulness in this command. There's constraint in this command that comes from Jesus himself. Husbands, love your wives. And remember when Paul wrote this, this, guys, this is, it's kind of normal to us. To, we've grown up in the church. We kind of get it. We know it. We've heard it. You know, yeah, we're going to get it. You know, seven, eight weeks on Ephesians 5. You know, this is revolutionary to the world even today. And it was revolutionary in Paul's day. To talk of loving your wife was unheard of. It's crazy. You got the guy Demosthenes, and you've heard this before, who said, we have courtesans for the sake of pleasure, we have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation, and we have wives for the purpose of having legitimate children and having faithful guardians of our household affairs. Not very elevating to women. Socrates says, is there anyone to whom you trust more serious matters than to your wife? Oh, isn't that sweet? He goes on. Is there anyone to whom you talk less? That was the culture. Trust her with the kids. Trust her with the matters of the house. Let her do it. Don't talk to her. Leave her alone. Trust her with the daily affairs. The well-known Jewish prayer, I thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a slave, and I'm not a woman. Shows the culture that Paul was writing to when he says, Husbands, Love your wives. Love your wives. The popular rabbinic school of Hillel would say that a man could divorce his wife for anything at all. And you remember the con confrontation against Jesus about this. Is it lawful for us to divorce our wife for any reason? Seriously, anything. Gals, imagine the insecurity there. What a covenant, huh? Too much salt on the food? You're out of here. You burn the toast? You're out of here. You know, there's... there's 
gunk on my spoon as I go to eat, get out. You starting to look a little less attractive than you did when you were 19 and we got married, get out. Any reason. This is the, this is the, you know, the, the culture and the time that Paul was writing to, even though it was to Asia Minor, this is just all around. These letters made it around. Uh, Rabbi Jesus, or Joshua Ben Sirach, put it, if she does not go as you direct, separate yourself from her. Long marriages. The Roman moral code specifically shown that the obligation was on the wife. She had to perform. All of the privilege was on the husband. And this went so far even as divorce. If, you know, uh, basically the wife couldn't divorce her husband and he could just go out and just, you know, live a life of, uh, you know, sexual immorality and infidelity. But if the wife had one, you know, uh, affair, then she would be put away, uh, but could never divorce her husband. And so Paul confronts this culture, and he confronts his culture, and he confronts our culture with an uh, incredible alternative, a glorious alternative, uh, a new way of life, a new way of living, a new way of thinking, these principles that are found in the Bible. Guys, the world needs to hear it. The world needs to hear it. May the Holy Spirit empower us to speak it uh, out to the world. Uh, a lot of husbands, they speak in this, you know, as if they were still part of the Roman ethic. Uh, Shel Silverstein, a great uh, poet, wrote um, a, an attack on male chauvinism in the form of kind of a country song. And it goes like this. You ready for this, Joe? You're going to be singing it all day tomorrow. Put another log on the fire. Cook me up some bacon and some beans. And go out to the car and change the tire. Wash my socks and sew my old blue jeans. Come on, baby, you can fill my pipe and then go fetch my slippers. And boil me up another pot of tea. Then put another log on the fire, babe, and come and tell me why you're leaving me. It goes on. Now don't I let you wash the car on Sunday? And don't I warn you when you're getting fat? Ain't I going to take you fishing with me someday? Well, a man can't love a woman more than that. And I ain't always going to, uh, and ain't I always nice to your kid's sister? Don't I take her driving every night? <laughs> so sit here at my feet, because I like it when you're sweet, and you know it ain't feminine to fight. Nothing? Seriously? <laughs> Shel Silverstein, Aaron, you grew up with that guy, where the sidewalk ends. So often that is our attitude towards our wife. Oh, we let you serve us. But Paul brings out what one writer calls a bare-knuckle swing at the domestic ethics of his time. He comes out boxing and brings the gospel, which anywhere the gospel would go, would bring liberty to women. Uh, you know, we tend to think of the women as the nurturers who take that role within the home. But according to Paul, men are to be nurturers. Men are to be lovers. You know, the, the TV that we watch these days, it, it pokes fun at men and says that they need to, you know, feel their feminine side a little bit more. But biblically, it's not the feminine side, it's the male side that is loving, that is tender, that is gentle, that, you know, parents the children and doesn't provoke them to wrath, but is even gentle and loving in his parenting. It's not a feminine thing at all. It's the real heart of what manhood is. And I remember getting a book and it's on my shelf today and, you know, there's some okay things in it. It's called Wild at Heart by John Eldridge. And I remember one thing about this book is he, you know, encourages us to be like Braveheart, you know, and to be like William Wallace, you know, and, uh, and that, you know, God is like William Wallace and we should be like William Wallace or we should be like the gladiator. Anyone seen that movie with Russell Crowe? You know, the gladiator, total man's man, the guy that introduces himself as Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix legions, loyal servant to the true emperor Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life 
or the next. And we all kind of do the Tim the Toolman Taylor grunt when we hear that, you know. But really, like the ultimate example of a man is Jesus. He is the example of a man. And his form of manliness came in power, the power of a servant, the power of humility, the power of a self-sacrificing love. This responsibility to love is determined by the husband. The husband sets the temperature for love within their home. Convicting for me. It's the husband that sets that temperature. And some of you guys, 41 years? 41 years yesterday. 50 years, right? 55 years? Incredible. Measly little 10 years here, you know? I'm still on the bottle. Even in these awesome 41, 55 years, 30 years, whatever it might be, man, the temperature can go up. The temperature can get hotter. But husbands, you get to lead in love in that, in that way. And we have that kind of love between Jesus and the church. Question is, why are you guys here tonight? You know, you're 10% of the church or something like that that have come out tonight. You know, and there's probably a few different reasons, like our marriage stinks and so we need some help, you know. Or uh, there's other reasons like, well, you know, we love Jesus when it all comes down to it. And, you know, I would ask you, well, why do you love Jesus? And you say, well, I love Jesus because he first loved me and I know that he died for me. And that kind of love that he's shown has brought you here tonight. You want to worship him. You want to love on him. You know he's worthy. You've seen what he's done and you want to respond to that, right? I mean, all of you guys here, you guys sacrifice time to serve, you worship, you give, you obey, and then you do that again, and you do that again, and you do that again. And why do you do those things? Because you get a trip put on you and bulletin announcement time on Sunday mornings, or what? Well, you do it because Jesus first gave to us, and so we give to him. Or Jesus first served, and so we serve in response to that. Jesus was obedient, and so we're obedient to that. It's all about Jesus. He laid down his life. He sacrificed his time. He fasted. So I lay down my life. I sacrifice my time. I fast. I spend time with Jesus because he first spent time for me, and people who are careless about their attendance on you know, Sunday, it's just a reflection of their comprehension and love for the gospel. Tim Savage uh, of uh, Sacred Marriage, or No Ordinary Marriage, says that the wide range of meaning attributed to this term love is enough to tax even the most gifted lexicologist. What does this love mean? It's so deep, it's so great, and it's so elastic. What does it mean? Ephesians 3.18, remember how the thread of love is woven throughout the book? Ephesians 3.18 says that uh, you know, the prayer is that we would be able to comprehend with all of the Christians, all of the saints, what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is this love of Christ? Gosh, may the Holy Spirit give us understanding of it. Length, height, width, depth, breadth. It passes our knowledge. And that's the kind of love that the Holy Spirit gives us for our wives, husbands. Savage goes on to say there is an exercise that we can perform to derive a more precise understanding of this love, we must picture in our minds the outer limits of Christ's sacrifice, the two points forming the launching pad and then the destination of his love. Heaven certainly represents the point of departure. If we could imagine the incomparable splendor that surrounds Jesus in heaven, we could appreciate how much love was required to pry him loose from his eternal bliss. 
The cross, on the other hand, was love's destination. If we could imagine the appalling nature of crucifixion, we could gain an appreciation of the depth of love required to embrace a fate so brutal. The reality, of course, is that none of us can fully comprehend these things, the splendor of heaven or the horror and brutality of the cross. But they represent the extremes and encompass the entire gulf of Jesus' love. And it's precisely that gulf that represents the measure of Christ's love. His love has awakened us. His love has aroused us and called us and incited us to love him back. And his love has romanced us to submit to him. Has it not? You guys want a healthy marriage? (laughs) Love him. Dive into his love. Seek out his love. Search out his love. The hymn that we sing, written by Isaac Watts, is so beautiful. It's one of my favorites. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, except in the death of Christ my God, All vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. What caused Isaac Watts to write that deep phrase of love so amazing, so divine, demands my whole soul, all of my love, all of my life. All of it. It was writing a hymn about the cross. The wondrous, wonderful cross. What is going to bring affection to your marriage from your wife? Well, first of all, it's going to be you writing songs about the wonderful cross. And living out that kind of cruciform love, as Tim Savage coined the term, cruciform love, self-sacrificial love. Not to manipulate wives to submit. It's just going to be the response. It's going to be the response. All of, his love, all of our love for him, it's just a reciprocation of his love for us. Love that was initiated by him. We're going to look at that more in the weeks to come. Love that causes us to write these songs about him. More, more songs about his love for us than our love for him. And that's good. That's a good place to be. There's this implication within our marriage as we look at the enormity of Christ's love that we aren't as husbands to just wait or or make it be so that we'll have a response from our wives or vice versa, wives just doing it so that they would have a response. But rather, it's gonna be a response from us to the Lord, not a manipulation tactic. I've done a little bit of counseling in my three years here and even did a little marriage counseling uh, as a high school pastor kind of throw you into it (laughs) and uh, you know just what you see so often are just husbands that would come and say you know what my wife has changed my wife has gotten cold and you you know begin to talk with them and quiz them and you talk to them about what they're dating was like, what their courtship was like, what their engagement was like. And, you know, you get into it and the husbands will basically lay out that they pursued their wife or their fiance with as much zeal as like one of these folks that just was going to the Olympics and training so hard and just, you know, no holds barred, just going all out to get this woman, to get this gal flowers and poems and phone calls and, you know, surprises and all sorts of wonderful things to, uh, you know, show this love. But then something caused that to end. Can you guess what it was? It was the marriage. The marriage caused that to end. Maybe it lasted for a little while right after the marriage, but we joked about it, right, guys? What? We got her. We got the prize. No longer, you know, don't need to like have any personal hygiene anymore. I landed her. I got her. You know, you know what I'm talking about, Anthony. <laughs> you know, we've, we've landed her 
And so why pour out anymore? And we just, you know, we just get distracted. We get distracted by jobs. We get distracted by toys. We get distracted by hobbies. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, the wife is still sitting back there waiting for that dashing Prince Charming that, you know, lured her to the wedding day. And he's out on vacation. He's just not there. And so the real question, whenever a husband would say that, that my wife has changed, it's really who changed her? Who changed her? Because who sets that temperature of love within the home? It's the husband. What your wife is now is the wife that you have produced, men, husbands, Rory. (laughs) It's the wife that we have produced. She might be a product of our love or a product of our lack of love. To a large extent, we determine this climate and this temperature of love within the marriage. Lots of different kinds of love. Lots of you guys know them. Um, Help us define this love. Uh, It's an elastic word that we use all across in our language because we could say everything from I love cookies to I love, you know, um, Gillette's new Mach 3 razor blades, you know, to I love Lindsay or I love Lucy. You know, we love these and it's all over the place for different things. Very elastic. But the Greeks and the philosophers of the Greek had different words for love. Words like eros, which is where we get our word erotic. And it would come from Asia Minor. And these, uh, for the word eros, the Greeks believed it referred to the kind of love that was won by compelling beauty or the worth of an object or person. It was sometimes referred to an exotic love experience between a man and their prostitutes. <laughs> Sorry, it was going romantic and then it took a crash in sin. That's where the term eros comes from. Or the word phileo was another uh, type of love that the philosophers used. Phileo speaks of brotherly love, and it's where we get uh, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Phileo uh, referred to the type of love that friends have when they share a common interest. Okay, phileo. Then there's storge. Uh, which was a familial type of love and uh, the nature of love one family member would have to another. But then the writers of the New Testament used a new term, a new word that hadn't really been coined before in the Greco-Roman world, and it's the word agape. You guys have heard it, of course. And it is um, a type of love that is not dependent upon feelings or passions or circumstances for it to have a basis to express itself. Basically, it's an unconditional, selfless love. And that's the type of word that Paul uses here. He doesn't say, husbands, be erotic towards your wife, eros. You know? Or, husbands, be like a real good bro to your wife, you know? But no, have a selfless love, an unconditional love. One man once said that these were, uh, for Eros, that it was all take. And for Phileo, it was give and take. And Storge, or Agape, excuse me, is all give. It's the all give love. No matter what she does, no matter how she talked to me, no matter what she cooked for dinner, no matter what she's wearing, no matter how many pounds she's taking off or putting on, I love her, and lay my life down to prove it. One author speaks of this love as a spiritual affection which follows the direction of the will. Unlike feelings which are instinctive and unreasoned, this can be commanded as a duty. Sometimes within marriage, we have to choose love. We get to choose love. We get to choose agape. We cry out for the Holy Spirit to put agape in us. And then we obey and we choose to love. Why? Because the scriptures tell us to love. Even when maybe it's not been earned. That's what makes it agape. Another definition 
for love, this love of Ephesians 5.25, that it's a self-giving love, totally unselfish, seeks not its own satisfaction or even affection, answering affection, but that which strives for the highest good of the one loved, a love that impels the one loving to give himself in self-sacrifice for the well-being of the one loved, a deep-seated, thoroughgoing, intelligent, and purposeful love in which the entire personality, not only the emotions, but the mind and the will, express itself. Guys, men, bros, at the end of the day, this is what we need the Holy Spirit for. Are we up to this kind of love? Well, it's precisely what we've signed up for. If you've got a ring on your finger, or if you're a construction worker and you don't wear a ring on your finger, but you still have the certificate, you have signed up for this selfless, unconditional love, whether you realize it or not. If you're a young man and you're planning on getting married someday, this is the type of love to anticipate, or you need to anticipate that you're signing off on, and you can pray for that. We can exhort our younger brothers that come to be engaged. Our life is characterized by this predetermined commitment as we go through pre-marriage counseling, as we pray, as we seek out the word, that we're to always act with our bride's highest interest and greatest good in mind. It's this ongoing performance that can never be interrupted by any display of imperfection on her part. Any display of imperfection. This is a love that is redemptive. It's a love that is actually drawn out by sin. It's a ministering love. Because when we see those imperfections in our wife, we don't condemn her or abuse her for it. We see it as a disconnect between her head, Jesus, and it's a ministry opportunity for us to pray, to converse, to apply scripture, to lead and to shepherd. It's a redemptive type of love where an eros or a phileo or a storge would say, hit the road, Jill, and never come back. But the agape says, ah, oh, ministry opportunity to make you holy, to conform you more and more into the image of Jesus. This agape love brings the temperature up in our marriage, no matter what the external circumstances may be, and no matter how cold they are. When we hear this, we forget how we feel. Forget how you feel. I don't want to, or she didn't do this. Or, it's not about how we feel. It's about what the word says as our authority. Is our love, husbands, and we're almost done, is our response to Jesus similar to the type of love we read about in 1 Corinthians? You want to flip there, or we have it up on the screen. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Now, before we read it, we're going to take out the word love. And husbands, we're going to add our names. Lucky you, it's, it's activity time at Calvary Chapel of Crick County. Don't worry, I'll start with myself. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Rory suffers long and is kind. Frank does not envy. Don does not parade himself. Ken is not puffed up. Paula, we get an amen? amen? All right. Blaine does not behave rudely. Joe does not seek his own. Ron is not provoked. Aaron thinks no evil. Scott does not rejoice in iniquity. Shelby rejoices in the truth. Rich bears all things. Chad believes all things. Am I missing anybody? Any men here? Go back to myself. Rory hopes all things, endures all things. 
I never fail. (laughs) Oh man, I need the Holy Spirit. (laughs) I need to get my eyes on Jesus because really, maybe you got lucky and it landed on the one thing you're good at. (laughs) But I need the Holy Spirit. I need Jesus to be that example to me, and he is. But I need to receive his perfection and his power and his motivation to live out what that right definition of love is. Whether or not my wife is submitting or respecting me, whether she's lovely or not lovely, husbands, love your wives. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Closing in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in us. And then all of these things are fruits of love. As, as the Holy Spirit works out agape love for our brides, then he's also going to work out joy in our marriages. And so just take your temperature, take your pulse right now. Does your marriage have joy? Does your marriage have peace? Does your marriage have patience or long-suffering? Does your marriage have kindness? and goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The good news is is that we can come to the cross tonight. We can come to what Jesus has accomplished. We can come to the example, and we can confess our sin, and confess our faults, and confess our failures, and confess that we were like Demosthenes, and Socrates, and the Greco-Roman culture, and we can say, Lord, I want to be a New Testament husband who loves my wife. And we're going to see that definition laid out even more of that Christ loved the church as Christ loved the church in the weeks to come. Amen? Tammy, ready? Ready to rock? All right. Let's pray. Let's stand. We can put our things down. Lord, we just thank you that um, we can come to you with our failures and our weaknesses and our flaws and our faulty worldviews. And we can come to your word that is that sharp double-edged sword that uh, can divide just between the soul and the spirit and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And Lord, we can come to your word and we can have your word confront our faulty worldview and shape us and change us. Lord, just knowing the men here in this room, like I I believe there's not a man here. It's not often I can say that, but in this room tonight, I believe there's not a man here that doesn't want to have this cruciform love, this self-sacrificing love, this agape love that Paul writes of here. And so we pray for that, Lord. We know our wives are here and, and they know what jerks we are. They know just how manipulative and rude we are, how faithless we've been. Maybe we've even lost just trust with them. They know like yesterday the argument we were in or today the argument that we were in. They know the way we've spoken to our kids. And Lord, even more than they know our depravity, you know our depravity. But Lord, we thank you that we have been washed and we've been cleansed and we've been justified and we've been sanctified by the Spirit of God. And we pray for that sanctification to continue tonight. As husbands, Lord, would you fix our gaze on the cross? May the cross never get old to us and may we never think we know enough about it that let's move on to just something that I can do now. Lord, would you fix our gaze on the cross? And Lord, would you just spark in our hearts and in our lives. And Lord, in our church, this is an unpopular view, even within our church, God, to apply the gospel to every fault and every failure. Lord Jesus, in the church and in our homes and in our marriage and our parenting, Lord, may we serve because you served. May we give because you give. May we sacrifice because you've sacrificed. May we lead because you've led. Thank you for your confrontation tonight and thank you for your gentle correction and thank you for the motivation and the power 
to, to live out Ephesians 5. The power of the Holy Spirit. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon, 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.